Welcome to the Doyen of Death podcast, funeral planning for those who don't plan to die. It's all about end-of-life issues and getting the conversation started about our 100% mortality rate. This series is hosted by Gail Rubin, certified thanatologist and the Doyen of Death. A Doyen is a woman who's considered senior in a group and knows a lot about a particular subject. Well, that's Gail. She knows all about creating the party no one wants to plan, a funeral or memorial service. She discusses the changes death can bring, and she'll make you laugh. This series includes episodes previously released as A Good Goodbye, a treasure trove of evergreen podcasts about funeral planning issues. This podcast reveals some of the mysteries and shares advice and tools that can reduce stress at times of grief, minimize family conflict, and help create a good goodbye. Remember, just as talking about sex won't make you pregnant, talking about funerals won't make you dead, and your family will benefit from the conversation. So, here to talk about the subjects we sometimes avoid is author, speaker, and the doyen of death, Gail Rubin. Welcome. I am so excited to have a funeral director friend of mine, Todd Hera, who is also a multi-published author. Todd is the author of his newest book, which we're going to be talking about here today, Last Rites, The Evolution of the American Funeral. Fascinating history book, all about death and funerals. He's also the author of Mortuary Confidential, Undertakers Spill the Dirt, and Over Our Dead Bodies, Undertakers Lift the Lid. Hello, Todd. Hey, Gail. Thanks for having me on your first show. Yes, this is the Doyen of Death podcast, kicking off with an excellent conversation with you. This book is so fascinating. Plus, I love these are the um, bookmarks that come with the book. <laughs> Little coffins. Let's right off the bat, tell our, our listeners, our viewers, what's the difference between a coffin and a casket? Oh my gosh, Gail, nothing makes me wince more than when I'm watching the news or something. A newscaster says the word coffin. You know as well as I do. Coffins are very rarely used in America anymore and haven't been for the past 150 years. Uh, the difference is the number of sides. So the bookmark you're holding up has six sides plus a top and a bottom. A casket has four sides plus a top and a bottom. Uh, every once in a blue moon, we'll get a family that has bought a coffin that's made by the Trappist monks or uh, somebody like Chuck Lakin up in Maine who makes coffins and puts his um, designs up on the internet for free for anyone that wants to try their hand at making their own coffin. But I would say I've been doing this 18 years and probably seen maybe four coffins. They're very, very rare in America. Yes, yes. Well, and and you work in the family business, McCrary and Hera Funeral Homes and Crematory in Wilmington, Delaware. And um, I want to know, so you wrote this book, Last Rites, during the pandemic. And did you have a lot of death going on in Delaware that you had to serve a lot of families or you had a lot of time to write? <laughs> 
we were just like every other funeral home. Uh, maybe certainly not as bad as New York, but we were overwhelmed at times um, and the lack of information in the beginning as to what exactly COVID was and how you contracted it, uh, you know, made things a little bit, you know, scary. Oh my gosh, am I going to bring this home to my family? Uh, So it was certainly a sigh of relief when they rolled the vaccine out. But, um, you know, those those newscasts of of people, uh, you know, hospital attendants in their uh, full PPE with the hoods and the masks and everything, taking, you know, body bags out to refrigerated tractor trailers, uh, you, you know, those those were real. I mean, those were real scenes. They weren't, you know, uh, ginned up in some Hollywood studio. And, you know, frankly, it it was sad what was happening. Uh, The amount of people that were dying due to COVID. And, um, you know, if I never see anything like that again in my career, I'll be very thankful. It was, it was scary time. Mm -hmm. Well, in Last Rites, you are looking at the entire span of history as it applies to what we do in funeral service in America these days. Like, how did we get here? But you go to not only ancient Egypt, of course, where embalming was first invented, but the Roman Empire, medieval Europe. There's so many different ancient influences that we don't even know as just your average American uh, actually come into play. There was something I read about an ancient Roman funeral rite that has morphed into the tradition of doing a photo montage at a funeral. Can you explain that? So I I think you're talking about the, uh, the family ancestral masks that the families would trot out and essentially have a parade behind uh, the decedent on their way to either being cremated or buried, uh, depending, you know, which part of the Roman period you're talking about. Uh, But the mask would be made and worn by uh, a person who would uh, essentially assume the role of this the decedent in their uh, in their own you know funeral cortege, um, and then that mask would be saved as a family heirloom and and venerated, um, and and so you know you'd have uh, grandmother, great grandmother, great grandfather, all their funeral masks being worn during these uh, funeral cortege's. Uh, that are winding through the streets, so you could see the whole family tree as part of the uh, as the funeral cortege. And you know, I kind of likened that to you know how people like to connect with their family tree in the modern sense that you know they'll do the photo boards or we'll do the you know the photo montages on the TV when you're coming in. And a lot of people, I feel like, try to draw in you know every family member, so no one's left out. Uh, so in the same way, the Romans would, would you know, have these ancestral masks that they'd wear during the procession. Uh, you have families now doing a very similar thing, connecting with their familial roots through, uh, you know, the modern photography. That is so cool. And one of the aspects of a funeral is usually having something to eat and drink. And I was amazed at the (laughs) scope of funeral feasting that you describe, you know, both in the ancient days as well as early America. Uh, 
including alcohol. Apparently, that was very big in early American funerals. Yeah, you know, I think that the probably the biggest surprise uh, for me about um, you know early American funerals was the cost of the funeral. You know, today, um, you know, funerals are a big big purchase. Um, you know, it's it's on par with buying something large like a car. But, you know, looking back, you know, two, three hundred years, they've actually gotten cheaper compared to people's net worth. Uh, you know, a colonial funeral, uh, it was not unusual for the funeral to cost one fifth of the person's entire estate. Uh, and most of that cost, and and when I say most, I mean 90 to 95 percent, were wrapped up in two things, the funeral gifts and the repast. Uh, you know, the, the coffin might cost four or 5% of the total funeral bill. Uh, so, so there's definitely, um, you know, a difference between contemporary funerals and colonial funerals in that the, uh, the, the portion of the total funeral bill that's made up by the repast um, has, has shifted drastically. Um, but, you know, families had, Friends and family members coming from, you know, distances over, you know, colonial roads, travel was not easy and people expected to be fed and lubricated with booze. Uh, and a lot of these, you know, funerals I was reading about is, you know, they would break open what were called uh, pipes of wine. So, you know, barrel sizes are all, I learned barrel sizes are all different. You know, you've got the hog's head and this, that, and the other thing, and they're all different size, but the, the pipe of wine is 126 gallons. And I read more than one funeral, the families were busting open a pipe of wine for the post-funeral meal. You know, so think about how much wine these people were consuming and they would basically, you know, just float home. Um, and, and this was one of the few occasions in puritanical America that drinking was uh, not only allowed, but it was, you know, kind of condoned and, you know, uh, encouraged. And there was this, uh, I'll call it a colonial colloquialism. That's kind of fun to say that uh, when parents, you know, had a baby born, they would start saving wine, either for its wedding or its funeral. And that kind of, you know, really hit home with me, like, wow, you know, it was um, just uh, very uh, surprising to me uh, that I had never read about the importance or the prominence of the repast in, in any of the, uh, you know, funeral history books I had to read for mortuary school. Well, and you also mentioned funeral gifts. That's something that I don't think we really have much of in this modern age, but it was quite popular with the Victorians and I guess even during the colonial period. I make reference to, I think, Gail, there is a vestige of the funeral gift um, in the modern funeral in that in the form of a prayer card, you know, in some areas of the country, it's called the memorial folder. Uh, you've probably also seen like the seed packets or, you know, some families will bring some kind of special little unique gift, like a polished stone or something like that. Um, you know, there's really nothing comparable to the lavish, expensive gifts given out in the colonial funerals. I mean, they were luxury goods, stuff that was very expensive, you know, gold rings, gloves, you know, fabric was very expensive, scarves, bottles of wine, books. 
Uh, so, so things that were very kind of rare and expensive were given out as gifts to the mourners that came to the funerals. Um, and, and, you know, sure, you know, the, the 10 cents of paper that the prayer card was printed on can't even kind of compare to a, you know, a gold ring. But uh, I, I do kind of make that connection. That's that that is the direct descendant of the funeral gift in contemporary America. And actually, in in a way, I've been to funerals or memorial services where they'll bring the deceased library of books and basically say, take a book, take three books, you know, as a downsizing measure, but also sharing, you know, a memento of the person. Absolutely. And I see all sorts of clever things like that. And I think it's a great idea. Gail Rubin, the doyen of death, has been producing Before I Die festivals for years. These festivals get end-of-life planning conversations started by putting the fun in funeral planning. Outside-the-box activities break down barriers to discussing death and planning for our 100% mortality rate. And now, Gail has created the Before I Die Festival in a Box, the comprehensive guide to producing your own community festival. It includes everything you need to create a successful event. How to find sponsors, build a team, market the event, schedule speakers, topics for discussion, workshop ideas, and much, much more. To learn how to get your Before I Die Festival in a Box, visit BeforeIDieFestivals.com or call 505-265-7215. Well, let's talk embalming. You are an embalmer and a reconstruction expert. There was a story in the section about embalming about Dr. Martin Van, is it Butchel? B-U-T-H. Butchel, yeah. Butchel and his embalmed wife. And, and that had some significance in the uh, development of our current funeral practices. Can you tell that story just a little bit? Sure, sure. So uh, Dr. Van Butchel was well known for his very, uh, shall we call them, unique marketing techniques. Um, he would ride around the Mayfair section of, of London on a white pony that he put purple spots on. And uh, Dr. Van Butchel was a dentist of some repute and also a truss maker. So he would make these bands for uh, people that had herniated, you know, in kind of an attempt to hold them together. And apparently he was very good um, or well known, shall we say, for both of them. But uh, when his first wife, uh, Maria, died, um, you know, and I, I couldn't pin this down exactly, uh, but I did read a couple things that um, he was he was able to stay in charge of some property of hers if she remained above ground. So he called um, the Hunter brothers, um, who were well-known Scottish anatomists, and um, had uh, William Hunter and William Cruikshank. Uh, who was also a famous surgeon, come over to embalm his wife. And uh, Dr. Van Butchel recorded in his diary, he participated in the embalming, which 
um, you know, uh, God bless him for that. But um, he he took part in the embalming, and uh, there are notes of uh, the exact procedure, so we know exactly what was done. But uh, it was a three day procedure, and at the end of the procedure, uh, he put his wife in in a case uh, with some sort of glass covering, and um, you know she people found out that this man has displayed his wife in his parlor. And so all sorts of people started flocking to his home, not just common people, but, you know, the landed gentry and even royals were coming in. So many people were coming and knocking on Dr. Van Butchel's door that he had to post a sign with essentially calling hours for people to come in and uh, see his wife. And it was, it just became a very, very famous case. And even when um, he married again, he married one of his servants, became his second wife, and she protested about the first Mrs. Van Butchel being on display in their parlor. But uh, it wasn't until he died that his second wife uh, had her mo- moved to a museum where she remained until a uh, bombing raid during World War II destroyed, destroyed her remains. Uh, so she was on display for uh, almost 200 years, but um, it just was a very famous case that kind of propelled this obscure anatomical science of embalming into the public's kind of the forefront of their mind and kind of ignited this this curiosity uh, with embalming. Mrs. Van Butchel certainly was not the first, um, you know, case of embalming in medieval Europe, uh, but I think she certainly is an early famous case. This was, I think, in the 1700s? Yes, late uh, 1700s. I think it might have just been just before around the time of the American Revolution. Wow. Okay. Yeah, because what we know here in the United States is during the Civil War, the use of embalming exploded with these surgeon doctors who would sell coupons that uh, primarily Northern soldiers would have in their in their uniforms pinned inside their jackets. So if they died on the battlefield, they they could be embalmed and shipped back to their families. But you've got so much detail about that, the railroads refusing to ship bodies that were decomposing and um, it just the whole Civil War uh, was such a huge impact on this country, on the United States, and and how we treat our dead, and and the military. Why don't we talk a little bit about that? You had some great history about the mortuary services for the military and how that evolved. I guess uh, I remember the parts about the Civil War. Did did you have any information about the Revolutionary War? I I did not. I didn't come across anything. You know, at, at the beginning of the American Civil War, the, the government had no plan for what they were going to do with the fallen. Um, and that's why these embalming surgeons kind of, uh, you know, there was this proliferation of embalming surgeons uh, because the families were hiring them to, you know, recover, find their loved ones because a lot of times they were buried on the battlefield by their friends and then embalm them and ship them home. I mean, the government was not doing any of the services it provides today. 
Uh, a lot of times these quote unquote agents, that's what they call these people that would go out and find soldiers for uh, the families and the bombers. Um, you know, they were going out days or weeks after the battles, you know, once once the field had been cleared of, um, you know, live soldiers, uh, you know, either pursuing the, the enemy, whoever it may be, or, you know, running in retreat. So, you know, sometimes it might take days for an army to leave the field of battle and people to actually get out there and start searching. But, you know, towards the end of the war, the, the Civil War is kind of when we see the turning point of the American military, you know, start to care for the dead. You know, we have the creation of, uh, you know, the, the government uh, cemeteries that uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, authorized and uh, charged Montgomery Miggs, who was the headquartermaster with creating uh, these cemeteries. And then uh, towards the end of the war, we see you know, the government started to take over some of those um, duties as far as, you know, they were um, essentially inspecting and vetting the embalming surgeons by the very end of the war. And then at the very end of the war, uh, you see Grant issue this order uh, that um, any, you know, union surgeons will embalm a union officer at no charge. Um, he was so fed up with the some of the antics that the uh, embalming surgeons were, um, you know, doing and causing problems with the army that this was his way of, of kind of, um, you know, taking their teeth. And, uh, you know, if a family has a choice, okay, am I going to get this for free or have to pay for it? Of course, they're going to go with the union surgeon who's going to perform the embalming for free. Um, and then from from there, you know, over the uh, the next few wars, um, you know, we see that the military get more and more involved, um, you know, with with the recovery of the dead and returning them to their families. Yeah, I, I learned about the Purple Cross. I had never heard of that. <laughs> that was um, not a military organization. Um, and. You know, I think it was, it, it's kind of been forgotten by history, uh, but but uh, two guys, one of them was uh, Mr. Eccles, who ran uh, the mortuary college that was here in Philadelphia for years, I think until the 1950s, and a newspaper man by the name of Jay Mowbray, uh, you know, came up with the idea of the Purple Cross uh, to um, return World War One doughboys back to American soil. And um, you know, they went to the military and said, listen, you know, we'll train these people, you know, we'll provide the equipment, um, you know, we'll fund the entire operation. And uh, the military essentially turned turned them down flat and said, no, thank you. Um, and at this this point, they had uh, created the GRS, the Graves Registration Service. Um, and, and so during World War One, uh, they did a great job of, uh, you know, identifying uh, the servicemen. Um, I forget the exact statistic, but, you know, it was close to 99 percent that they were able to identify and, and they would put uh, the person's name in a glass bottle and bury it with the person. Um, and there was hundreds of these little scattered cemeteries uh, around Europe at the conclusion of World War One that they then uh, condensed into, um, I forget the exact number, maybe six fields of honor across Europe where they, um, you know, moved all the servicemen uh, whose families wanted them to remain over there. Uh, at the end of World War One, the family had a choice. 
They could either have their loved ones uh, remains repatriated back to America or uh, lie, you know, in, in European soil with, uh, you know, their, their comrades in arms. And uh, I'm guessing it was World War One when dog tags uh, got introduced and that might have helped. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dog tags were, were issued uh, as a standard piece of equipment then, uh, but I, I don't know if you've ever come across this, Gail, but some Civil War soldiers uh, had, had dog tags. Um, Harper's uh, Weekly would sell them, and uh, you know the soldiers quickly realized that you know paper can get wet or torn out, and uh, a lot of these guys would uh, you know be stripped of their you know their good clothing you know by the enemy who wanted you know oh this is a nice coat, uh, so they quickly learned uh, to either purchase one of these metal tags from Harpers and wear it on their purse and around their neck, or if they couldn't afford that, they would uh, you know carve their name into a little piece of wood wear it around their neck. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, one of the stories that you shared was about the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, which came out of World War I, and how that soldier was chosen to represent uh, all of the unknowns. So that soldier was um, chosen by um, a combat veteran, um, General Pershing wanted, uh, you know, a regular doughboy to uh, pick the unknown, uh, not, you know, one of the officers or, you know, somebody, quote unquote, important. He wanted somebody who had been in the trenches slogging it out. Uh, so what they did was they um, uh, exhumed uh, four uh, cases uh, from for the different cemeteries uh, and, and made sure that this person, first of all, was an American soldier and uh, two, was completely unidentifiable, you know, either by their, their rank, their, you know, uh, what unit they served with, you know, they didn't have any personal effects, uh, that this person was truly unidentifiable. And then they brought all the, uh, the, the, the four um, caskets into a chapel and uh, this soldier, and his name escapes me uh, right now, uh, went in with a bouquet of white roses and um, walked around them one time and then picked one, laid the bouquet of roses on the casket, saluted, and left. And that's, that's how the unknown soldier was uh, selected. And then the three uh, who weren't selected were taken back and uh, they weren't buried in the cemeteries where they came from. They were all buried uh, in the same cemetery. So one, one of the great things about Last Rites, your, your book, is I, I learned things as the doyen of death. I thought I knew most of what I needed to know, but the word for pallbearers is not what I thought it was, and uh, that the pall and the bearers are actually two different things. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, in in colonial America, typically the grave was walking distance from the house. It was either you, you know the the a family plot that was, you know, in the backyard, or it was maybe the, the common green, the town's uh, square, or an abandoned lot where people were burying folks. Um, you know, bottom line, it was someplace that was walkable. And 
the pallbearers were older gentlemen in the community who literally held the pall in place on the coffin as it was uh, taken to the uh, the grave plot. Uh, the people that did the actual work were the the underbearers, is what they were called. And if it was a distance from the home to the grave, uh, they would have a second set of uh, underbearers uh, to accompany the coffin. And in keeping with the uh, the funeral tradition of funeral liquor, um, you know, I think it was smart a lot of times to have a second set of underbears. You know, if the uh, first set had imbibed a bit too much. <laughs> but so the pole bearers were actually these older guys holding onto the corners of a piece of fabric over the casket. And in this day and age, when you say pole bearer, it's people actually grabbing those handles and carrying it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's changed a little. And, and I like to, uh, to, to make kind of this, this comment that, you know, the, the, uh, the average uh, life expectancy uh, for, for males in Salem in 17th century was, was 30 years old. So, you know, what's an older person of the community? I would have been dead and buried years ago uh, by that standard. So, <laughs> so you know, I, I don't know how old the older people in the community were, but it probably was what we call middle-aged these days. Wow. <laughs> Gail Rubin, the doyen of death, is the author of three award-winning books. In A Good Goodbye, Funeral Planning for Those Who Don't Plan to Die, Learn How to Save Money, Reduce Family Conflict, and Minimize Stress at a Time of Grief. Just as talking about sex won't make you pregnant, talking about funerals won't make you dead, and your family will benefit from the conversation. Kicking the Bucket List, 100 Downsizing and Organizing Things to Do Before You Die brings a light touch to downsizing and organizing for end-of-life issues. And Hail and Farewell Cremation Ceremonies, Templates and Tips helps you easily create meaningful memorial services with sample scripts, suggested readings, and music recommendations. These fine books by Gail Rubin, The Doyen of Death, are available on Amazon and wherever books are sold. For more information, visit agoodgoodbye.com. Thanks for listening. This is part one of our two-part episode. Stay tuned for part two coming next week. Thank you for joining us on the Doyen of Death podcast. You can find episodes of this podcast and past episodes of A Good Goodbye with Gail Rubin on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information on Gail's work, visit agoodgoodbye.com.